appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. Glad all you guys are able to join us this morning. If you look around, this is kind of the remnant of Corvallis during our lovely holiday season. So we're so thankful you guys are here with us. A few of you guys have been here over the last few weeks. Uh, we've been walking through our Advent series uh, as we really look to the coming of Christ. Um, and this year we've got to focus on the beauty that God is with us, that he's with us as king, that he's with us as savior. And today we look at him as with us as good news. So this week I've, I've done a lot of thinking about the term good news. What, what does good news mean? Is good news something that's objective, or is it subjective? Does the goodness of news simply come down to the beholder of the news? You see, as I began to think through history, um, I believe there are many events that I think are really good news for all people. But in reality, only a specific group of people, and that's, that group could be large, uh, actually care about it or see it as truly good news, as good news that makes a difference in their life. For many others, this good news is really received with an indifference, or for others, a disdain. You see, I think the majority of the time, good news is only received and rejoiced in as good news when it actually applies to us, or when we actually think it makes a difference in our lives or in the lives of those that we care about. And we've seen this played out throughout history. In 1865, the 13th Amendment was instated, the abolishment of slavery. This is truly good news for all people. I mean, it's a terrible time in our history that we had slaves, that we said a one man or one woman was less value than us. Never in our history should humans be able to own other humans. You see, for the African-Americans and for the Northerners in America, this was great news. This was a huge victory. Yet for people in the South, this wasn't really received as good news. Rather, as a, a negative change to the way of life. Or 1920, the women's rights movement. After years of fighting for equality, women finally had the right to vote. Again, this is good news for all people, that man and women are equal. Women were granted the right to vote. So obviously, this is a monumentous moment for women. The women rejoice, and so did many men. But at the same time, there's that remnant of people that are men, mainly, that are indifferent about it. Okay, cool. You have the right to vote now. Or 1944, the fall of the Third Reich. This is good news for all people. For there was a people group that was trying to destroy and annihilate a whole people group from the face of the earth. Almost six million Jews died in that process. And so the overwhelming majority of people rejoiced in V-Day, rejoiced in that celebration where we finally had peace, where the destruction had ended. Yet for others, this was the end of an age. There was pain in the midst of this good news. Today, we're talking about the greatest news for all people. In today's passage, we focus on the reality that God is with us as good news. 
This is good news for all creation. This is good news for the entire world. And yet we have to ask the question, do I actually believe this is good news? Or am I indifferent? Has this good news actually changed the way I live my life, the way I view the world? Our roadmap for today with God with us adds good news is we're going to first look at who receives it, who receives this good news. It's important to look at who receives it prior to what we're actually receiving because we realize there's a specific nature to those that receive. Number two, we're going to look at what the anointed one does, what this good news actually is. And number three, we're going to look how do we respond. In light of this good news, how does it change our lives? So one, who receives it? Isaiah 61, verses 1 through the first part of 3. says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint heart. So as the anointed one speaks, who is it that receives this blessing, this good news? He says it's the poor, the brokenhearted, the captive, those who are bound, those who mourn. So historically, who are these people? Who is he talking to? You see, the Israelites have been in exile in Babylon for 70 years. 70 years is a super long time. I'm currently 28 years old, so just add on another 42 years of my life. And that's how long the Israelites have been away from their home. I mean, in that amount of time, my daughter Ivy, who's six months old, would have grown up. And realistically, she would have had children. And there's a good chance that her kids would have had kids. We're talking generations of people that have been separated from their home, from this promised land. And now they finally get to return. That's what this passage is speaking of, is them coming back out of exile to Jerusalem once again. We're told in 2 Chronicles 36 that Cyrus, who's the king of Persia, had defeated the Babylonians. And in that, he allowed the Israelites to return to Israel, to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and their temple. But just imagine returning to your home that's been destroyed. Your walls have been broken down. Your houses are in shambles. And your temple, the very presence of God, where you worship the one true living God, has been decimated. It makes you think of walking into a scene from a post-apocalyptic film and just seeing devastation everywhere you look. And they return with the job to rebuild. As one commentator puts it, he says, So despite the reconcentration of Israel, the people remain poor, down, broken, demoralized, crushed in mind and spirit, captive in their own land, prisoners, people who grieve continuing suffering of their city, who are metaphorically smeared with the ashes of mourning. They live in a devastated city. 
See, this is the people that God says, hey, I've got good news for you. And who, who are these people? Who are these people today? Because obviously we're not going to a destroyed place to rebuild. So who are the poor today that he speaks to? The poor are those that are physically poor. Those that are scraping by to make ends meet. That are worried where their next paycheck's going to be. And are worried are any presents going to be under the tree in two days. The poor are those that are emotionally and spiritually poor. Those that feel distraught and at the end of their rope. The brokenhearted. Those who are weak and lack strength. Those who look at the world and are in anguish to see all the pain and suffering at the world at large and in their own life. Those that are broken over their sin. Those who feel like their hearts have been ripped out of their chest through broken relationships, broken promises, and broken desires. Those that are captive. Second, those that are bound. And lots of things, those that are captive to sin. You see, sin brings us into captivity and bondage. In John 8, 34, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. See, these people today are those that are captive to their past mistakes, those who are in bondage to their sins, those that stay awake at night thinking about what they had done in their past, or even those that are placing shackles on themselves through the way they live their life. The people there are those who mourn, who weep over the emptiness in their life, the emptiness of friendships, relationships, the lack of fullness, the lack of meaning in one's life that they feel, and the faint-hearted or despaired, those that have a spirit of heaviness. Do you feel weighed down and unable, unable to pick yourself back up? Those who just wish for more with their life. See, my, my question, as, as we read through this list, it feels pretty gloomy. Do any of those describe you? Or have any of those described you? This passage seems to make it pretty clear that the anointed one comes for these types of people. To receive what he brings, our lives ought to at least somewhat fit into these categories. You see, for those that this describes you, where you're like, oh, I've felt that way. I've felt brokenhearted. I've felt poor. I've experienced poverty. Or I've felt captive. Then you are in need of good news. You cling to that reality that Jesus is coming. But if you're here today and you see this list, you hear this list and you're thinking, none of those things really apply to me. I have to ask. Is the gospel actually good news to you? Do you actually rejoice in the fact that Jesus came? And not just in some intellectual sense of, yes, I know the gospel is good news. I can, I can state it. I'll even tell people about it. But is it good news that actually changes your very being? That it actually changes you? Here's a little, little illustration to help kind of draw this point further. You've got two different situations when, you, when one goes to the doctor. Situation number one, you've got the person that's super health conscious. Let's call him Bob. 
And Bob exercises five times a week and even throws in a little yoga on the side to get that stretching in. He gets eight hours of sleep a night, eats his Cheerios every morning to lower his cholesterol, and has an apple a day to keep the doctor away. So he goes in for his yearly checkup. Once the exam's complete, the doctor comes back in. And he says, hey, Bob, I've got some great news for you. You're healthy. Situation number two. I read a story this week about a little girl named Roxley Doss. Uh, she's an 11-year-old from Texas. Um, and over the summer, she was diagnosed with a rare, inoperable brain tumor. So you see this tumor over time uh, decreases your ability to swallow, to see, to talk, and eventually affects your breathing. So she's diagnosed with months to live. You see, for her, her simplest hope is just, can I get through Christmas this year? Can I maybe see my 12th birthday? And thus, the radiation process begins, which for her was not a cure. It was simply a life-extending measure. And two months after being diagnosed, uh, she went in for an MRI, and miraculously, the tumor had disappeared. They took multiple looks at it. The tumor was gone. So the doctor comes into her family and says, Roxley, I've got some good news. You're healthy. You see, the understanding of one's personal situation is vital to how you respond to that good news. The doctor came in and ultimately gave the same good news to both Bob and Roxley. You're, you're healthy. Yet for Bob, this good news isn't really transformative. He leaves his appointment indifferent, kind of the expectation, well, of, of course I'm healthy. Look at my lifestyle. And yet for Roxley, this news is earth-shattering. She and her family weep with joy at the miracle they just experienced. You see, with this good news, her life is forever changed. I mean, she had a news article written about her. So for those that feel like these descriptions speak to your life, you get to hold on to the expectation and hope we receive from the anointed one. And as we dive into the next section, we get to see the beauty of what that good news is, what hope we get to cling to. But if you're here today and you don't feel like this accurately portrays you, I urge you to dive deeper into your life, to look to the depths of your being and to see, do I actually fit into these categories? Again, my desire is not to create this melancholy, woe is me perspective on life, but rather it's to direct your attention to, do I actually need good news? Or do I think my life is good news in and of itself, so I don't need anything else to be good news to me? Jesus in Mark 2, he said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Do we see ourselves as sick? Do we see ourselves in need of the great physician? To truly grasp and understand this good news, we have to realize that we are sick and in need of saving. That we are brokenhearted in need of mending. We are captive in need of freedom. We are mourning in need of joy. We are faint-hearted in need of worship. It's the difference in response of 
Come, Lord Jesus, come. I need you to, wait, Jesus, I'm not quite ready yet. The anointed one comes to bring good news. And as we see it through the gospel story, the Advent story itself, Christ came to bring good news. And good news to all. We, we know the story that while shepherds were tending their flocks in the field, the angels of the Lord came upon them. And they said, fear not, for behold, I bring good news of great joy with you for all the people. You see, Christ came for all the people to bring good news. But we actually have to see it and believe it as good news to actually make a difference in our life. So what is this good news, this hope of restoration that we cling to? Ultimately, what does the anointed one do? Again, in verses 1 through 3, we see the anointed one brings good news to the poor. It's telling people that their past situations will change and that a new period of history is about to begin. And then kind of from that statement on, we see, hey, this is what good news actually is. This is what I am bringing. He says, I've come to bind up the brokenhearted, to ultimately restore those that are broken, to take the broken pieces of your body and soul and to piece them back together with me being that mending glue, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to actually open the prison cells of our lives, to remove the shackles from our lives, those that life circumstances have put on us, as well as those that we so often put on ourselves. He's come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance. And there is a parallelism between these two. They're two sides of the same coin. You've got the year of the Lord's favor, which for the Israelites, they would think automatically to the year of Jubilee which was this beautiful part of God's law that on the 15th year, every 15th year, Israel would take the whole year off. And any land that had been sold was returned to its owner. The land had a year to break. All debts were canceled. It was ultimately a year to rejoice in kindness and generosity. And so that's what they think of when they think of the year of the Lord, a year of the Lord's favor. And the flip side of that was the day of vengeance. The idea that judgment is coming. Wrath will be poured out on those who oppose God and those who oppose God's people. You see, it's God is going to right all wrongs. Yet it's interesting to note that the Lord's favor is a year, while judgment is but a day. See, the Lord's favor reigns supreme. Judgment is coming, but we rejoice in the Lord's favor. We rejoice in this year that leads to eternity. He gives us hope that the world will be made right. The anointed one comes to comfort all who mourn. One commentator, one commentator stated, Comfort is both a message that makes people feel better and an act that gives them grounds for feeling better. See, the anointed one came to remove the pain and restraints that cause you to mourn. And then he gives the people some things. He gives them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, which is ultimately removing mourning and replacing it with joy 
and beauty. He gives them oil of gladness instead of mourning. The people will receive their own anointing with oil. And then lastly, he gives them a garment of praise instead of a faint heart. He says their clothes will no longer reflect their brokenness, but instead it will be festal garb of worship. And the beauty of all these images is it actually correlates to priestly images. Uh, we even see in verse 10 of this chapter uh, where he speaks of priests wearing headdresses. And we know that priests were those that would be anointed with oil. And their very lives were one of worship. Their very garments were one of worship. You might be asking yourself, and maybe you can start to make the connection, that, that who is this anointed one that Isaiah is speaking of? Because Isaiah doesn't make it clear. He doesn't say, hey, the spirit of the God is upon me and me equals. Yet in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus decides to make it extremely clear who this is talking about. In chapter 4 of Luke, it says, As was his custom, he, being Jesus, went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight of the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the, the eyes of all were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Kind of the ultimate mic drop right there. You see, Jesus is stating, I am the anointed one that Isaiah is speaking about. I have come to bring good news. I am the fulfillment of these statements. And what's interesting is if you notice where he stops, he stops right before the day of vengeance. So he's saying, hey, the year of the Lord is at hand. But the day of vengeance is still coming. The year of the Lord is an extension where the day is, is coming. And so in a sense, we look and wait for the second advent. When Christ comes back to truly inflict his day of judgment and his eternal day of favor, his eternal year of favor. Yahweh will come to bring justice to his enemies and to truly restore his people, to restore his world back to the beauty of the garden. See, we take hope in that. We take comfort in that. We have the one that has overcome the world. And just as the Israelites need good news, needed to rest in the hope and assurance of life-giving change and restoration happening, we too need to cling to that truth. So what does God with us as good news actually mean? What does it mean that Jesus is good news? Jesus is good news because he came as Emmanuel. He came as God incarnate. The fact that with him, we are never alone. We are never separate from God when we have Christ. Jesus is good news because he came as king. 
He came as a different kind of king to rule and reign with peace, mercy, and grace. And we cling to the reality that when he is king, his reign is forevermore and shall never end. He is good news because he came as savior to redeem us from our brokenness, to take us out of darkness and to bring us in to light. He came to right all wrongs and he came to make us stand before God and actually be accepted. He came as good news because he brings freedom to our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin, but we are children of righteousness through Christ. He came as good news because he shows us the temporariness of our situations. He ultimately shows us that we were made for a different world, a restored, renewed world. And that our current situations are but a minute dot in the line of eternity. Therefore, we know that the best is yet to come through Christ. Jesus is good news because he is the one that defines us. We are beloved sons and daughters of the most high God through Christ and whom he is well pleased. See, no longer my job or my success, my family, my sexuality, my achievements, those don't define me anymore. God does. That's good news. No longer do I have to strive for my own achievements and my own worth when I can look to Christ and say, that's where my worth is. Everything I ever need rests in that man. This is the good news Jesus proclaimed. Jesus' words, the beauty of that is Jesus' words lead to action and his will done. When he says something, we know it is accomplished and it happens. And at the very end of Isaiah 3, he even talks about the purpose. Why? Why this good news? You see, the anointed one came and says, so that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. See, all this happens, this good news happens that we, the people of God, may be built up into oaks of righteousness, ultimately to create a forest of righteousness. As far as the eye can see, they see righteousness. See, that we have deeper roots, that we are not swayed by the wind. The gospel, the good news, builds strong Christians, planted by God and rooted in him. And ultimately, it's that he, that God, may be glorified. He came as good news for his glory, that he may receive all honor and all praise. And so how do we respond? How do we respond to this good news that we have been given? Because again, if we see that we fit into these categories, that we are in need of saving, that we are in need of a king, that we are in need of good news, then it's going to naturally lead to us changing our lives. And it's going to naturally lead to us doing something in response. In verse 4, it says, They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Verse 1 through 3 is all about what the anointed one is doing. And verse 4 shifts to now the people that have been blessed, how they respond. 
And ultimately, they respond by rebuilding the city, by going into Israel and Jerusalem and building up what was once destroyed. The exiled Israelites come back to a destroyed and devastated city. And they get the job to build up the city, build up the temple. We even see that in Ezra and Nehemiah. They get to build up a new Jerusalem. And so what does that mean for us today? See, Jesus came to us as good news as well as he came to the Israelites. And in response, we get to be that good news to others. You see, we have been set apart with a purpose, and, and a glorious one at that. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous, marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now... You are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are the children of God. We are the new Israel. And what are we to build up? What are we supposed to bring restoration to, to bring life to? We're supposed to bring it to the kingdom of God, to the church, to the body of Christ. I mean, again, even as we look at the first three verses and we see this priestly imagery, and then we see in, second, in First Peter where we're actually called a holy nation, a nation of priests. We are to be proclaimers of the good news that we have received. Again, just as the angels told the shepherds, this is good news to all people, we get to play that role of proclaiming that good news to all people. But to truly proclaim it as good news, we have to actually believe it and see it as good news, as news that transforms us. And we have to ask the question, of who should we be proclaiming this good news to? And as the passage shows, it's, it's those who are poor, those who are brokenhearted, who are held captive, who are mourning, who are faint-hearted? Are we building up the church, pouring out to those people? Are we building up the body of Christ, caring about every minute ligament and digit of that body? In Ortland's commentary on this section, he kind of sums up our commissioning, and he states, Isaiah's point in verse 4 is that gospel-liberated people themselves become a creative force for restoration. That's our mission. God says in verses 5 and 6 that this mission is heroic and will be received as heroic. And in verse 7, that this mission is joyful with a joy that will last forever. The mission of Jesus and his church will be rebuilding ruins when every noble human salvation is falling into ruins. This is our commissioning. This is, this is our calling. And I want to close with this question. If, if God is with us as good news, how does it actually change your life, practically speaking? 
practically, it changes the way you do relationships. It changes how and with who we do relationships. It changes the how we do relationships because our relationship now becomes word-centered. It becomes good news-centered. Good news is not something we just hold on to and stay quiet about. Good news is meant to be shared. You get a new job. You get a new girlfriend or boyfriend. You get engaged. You get a 4.0. You get accepted to college. You don't stay quiet about those things. You tell anybody and everybody that will hear. I mean, heck, when we get excited when sports teams win, we're not even on the team, and we'll tell everybody about it. Yeah, what about the good news of new life? The good news of being transformed from death to life, being brought out of darkness. That's good news worth telling. And as we embrace this good news, we can't help but share it with others. The gospel isn't just good news the day that we acknowledge Christ as our Lord and Savior, the day that we repent and turn to him. The gospel is good news every single day of our life. Yet do we live within that reality? And the gospel also changes who we do life with, who we do relationships with. Because as Jesus reveals, again, good news is for the poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, those that mourn, those that are faint-hearted. Are we pursuing those kinds of people? Because the good news, we need to be willing to relate to people that we often wouldn't relate to. It literally transforms the way we do life, the way we pursue people. Uh, J.I. Packer, um, in his famous book, Knowing God, sums up this sentiment so well. Uh, It's going to be on the screen because it's a fairly long quote, um, but it's super solid and hits the point. Packer says, we talk glibly of the Christmas spirit, rarely meaning more than than this sentimental jollity of a family basis. But it ought to mean the reproducing in human lives of the temper of him who for our sakes became poor at the first Christmas. And the Christmas spirit itself ought to be marked of every Christian all the year round. It is our shame and disgrace today that so many Christians, and I'll be more specific, so many of the soundest and most orthodox Christians go through this world in the spirit of the priest and the Levite in our Lord's parable seeing human needs all around them. But after a pious wish, and perhaps a a prayer, that God might meet those needs, averting their eyes and passing by on the other side. That is not the Christmas spirit. Nor is it the spirit of those Christians, alas, there are many, whose ambition in life seems limited to building a nice middle-class home, making a nice middle-class Christian friends, and bringing up their children in nice middle-class Christian ways who leave the sub-middle-class sections of the community, Christian and non-Christian, to get by by themselves. The Christmas spirit does not shine out in the Christian snob, for the Christmas spirit is the spirit of those who, like their master, live their lives, their whole lives, on the principle of making themselves poor, spending and being spent to enrich their fellow humans, giving time, trouble, care, and concern to do good to others, and not just their own friends, in whatever way there seems need. 
The fact that, that God became man, that he became Emmanuel and emptied himself of his glory. The fact that Jesus came to proclaim good news and to set us free means we should not just want to hang out with people that look like us or people of power and beauty. Those who fit into the status quo and are influential in this world. No, we need to be willing to go to the people who are without power, without money, without beauty. Those that look different from us. Those that truly need the good news. Christmas means God with us. God with us as king. God with us as savior. God with us as good news. The emphasis is God with us. God with me. God with you. So may we be people who are with others. May we be people who share this good news with them. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you <coughs> for Advent. We praise you for the coming of your son, Jesus, who came incarnate, who came as both God and man, to show us the way to you and to show us that he is the only way to you. Lord, we praise you that he came as king to reign. We praise you that he came as savior to save. We praise you that he came as good news to change our lives so we can ultimately be proclaimers of that same good news. May we leave today changed, challenged, and encouraged to take heart to that good news and to proclaim it to others. Lord, may we take this season to be present with people, people that look like us, the people that look very different than us, that as we go, we know that you are with us, that we cling to that. In your name, amen.